podcast, this is Allison Anunziata, Research Programs Manager. Since its founding, UCHRI has funded residential research groups for both faculty and graduate students to engage in collaborative work around a specific topic. And in spring 2019, the topic was truth, broadly conceived. UCHRI welcomed convener Aaron James in philosophy at UC Irvine, and participants Wayne Spencer Coffey in history of consciousness at UC Santa Cruz, Robin Derby in history at UCLA, Laurent Moore in comparative literature at UC Irvine, Palumi Saha in English at UC Berkeley, and Abigail Stepnitz in jurisprudence and social policy also at UC Berkeley. The following is an intimate look into one of their weekly, clearly interdisciplinary seminars held here at UCHRI, featuring a conversation that spans vampires, zombies, transcontinental witchcraft, and leads ultimately to Hillary Clinton and Pizzagate, which they read as a modern-day witch story. Take a listen. What are the representative vampire stories in Africa? What's the sort of characteristic uh, story? How did, what were the details like? Well, Louise White brings together actually a range of materials that she she's you know bracketing within this rubric of vampires. But um, I mean, basically, she's talking about the introduction of some new kinds of um, biomedical projects and also new forms of technology in colonial Africa um, that caused ra- rumors. So in the case of biotechnology, there were um, vaccination campaigns, for example, and anesthesia. These were new technologies which Africans were thought were very, um, you know, th- there had not, not been a practice of healing involving penetrating skin. Um, and so she looks at so, how some of these vaccination campaigns in particular caused, you know, I, I've also seen this in the Caribbean during the U.S. occupation of Haiti and the Dominican mm-hmm. Republic. People thought that the vaccination campaign, which was a basic public health measure, Rumors were that it would make your limbs fall off. Um, So she looks at that. She also looks at how new kinds of labor, for example, um, mining and new forms of technology like the uh, the uh, you know firemen, which you know brought the car, uh, and it it was a kind of veiled labor, which she argues was produced a whole series of of rumors around what what the hell was going on with these firemen with their tubes and their petrol and and so forth. So. She's, she takes a, a range of different materials around what she calls veiled labor and new forms of, of, of labor that, you know, were un, which, which were seen as, as mysterious and, and, um, and unknown that caused rumors, as well as uh, Western biomedicine. And, um, and, and, and under this, she calls the, these vampires, but they're actually kind of an assemblage of different kinds of rumors. But how did the locals... In the different well, first of all, look like which um, which African countries tended to have these is, sort of vampire stories. She collects materials from across the continent, a lot of material from the Congo, from Central Africa, um, as well as colonial Tanganyika, Kenya, and Uganda, which were ruled under under as one unit at that time. Um, some of her material, she's got you know this is a you know some of her best work is in is really she's an essayist, and a lot of her essays go as far as Southern Africa too. Like mining is perfect because mining, um, diamond mining, which you know was a it was you know a new kind of again veiled labor. But what, um, what is the veiled labor concept? What does that mean? The veiled labor is that you know you have these well, for example, firemen. Yeah. You know what were they doing with what were the, you know they were working with a new kind of technology, 
um, which involved tubes and, you know, um, petrol was a, was a new concept, you know, and so the, you know, the, it, it created these, these rumors of, um, about, which she argues are vampiric because they involve blood sucking. Um, and the biomedical uh, technologies like anesthesia and, and vaccinations and also taking blood also generated rumors about blood sucking. I mean, this is, you know, her material is very close to the ground in Africa, but, you know, there are similar rumors you can find in colonial Andes until the present, actually, or parts of Guatemala. In the Andes, you had rumors about the Carisiri uh, or the Pistaco, which were gringos, interestingly. Um, I mean, they're not framed as white, but they often have a uh, Western hat and cowboy boots. Um, and uh, in, even back into the 18th century, there were rumors of probably priests who were doing work in rural, uh, remote Andean communities. Um, and it was said that they, these rumors emerged that um, these guys were sucking Andean fat, which is a you know, very similar kind of rumor. Um, again, around these new figures, these new colonial figures of these pr priests who were going to these remote areas. Later, these same rumors get recycled as Peace Corps workers who often had generators and water tanks. And it was rumored that the water tanks, you know, this is in parts of rural Ecuador, that the water tanks actually were indigenous fat. They were collecting fat. So, and, and these rumors in Guatemala um, created even incidents of violence against, um, you know, gringo backpackers. So, you know, in a way, I mean, I think she's tapping into something that goes way beyond the African material, even though, I mean, you might say this is, there, there is certainly a lot of specificity to, to, you know, colonial Africa when new forms of technology and new forms of biomedicine were coming in. But, you know, you see similar uh, conspiratorial rumors um, also in the Caribbean, I mean, in Puerto Rico, I mean, I've worked on the chupacabras rumors, which are, again, vampiric. So these uh, goats and rabbits and dogs and cats were found without their blood, with their blood sucked. And there are some, um, you know, there's some scientists who, who said, wait a second, there was a drought, there are vampire bats, there are rhesus monkeys who may have come out and done this, but, you know, the rumors emerged that, in fact, you know, that there was something, that, and there were sightings of a kind of um, UFO-like creature. Yeah, I mean, I did interviews with people in Puerto Rico who, who saw these things that, which resemble a kind of UFO that were something vaguely, disturbingly mechanical. And, you know, conspiratorial stories emerged that the CIA and the Department of Defense had created an, either an interspecies hybrid clone, which they'd left in Puerto Rico to experiment on Puerto Rico, or that there was a um, the Department of Defense and the CIA were in touch with a UFO space station mm -hmm. under Vieques Island. Um, you know, so, you know, it, in a way I think she's, she's tapping into a phenomenon that is much bigger than just Africa. So, um, in Louise White's book, uh, Speaking with Vampires, um, the focus is on these African countries um, and the rumors that emerged under colonial rule. Um, in response to sort of new technology, developments of new technology, which were just um, even new forms of work like fire services, right? They had these new technologies, the, the trucks and the weird tubes and, and such. Um, or there was new medical technologies, right, for vaccination. And then there was just uncertainty about 
it wasn't just how these work or how they were going to be used, or was it an environment of distrust, I guess, you know, kind of, and then yes. that, there was distrust and then a need to have sort of a story about what was going on to explain things. And so these rumors can spread that involve uh, blood sucking, fluid sucking, fat sucking, uh, like related to the body, sort of mm -hmm. like a, a, a really personal threat to bodily integrity. And exactly. that was the way that um, they felt like they could sort of get the bead on what was really, really going on, sort of the behind the scenes uh, story. So someone's presented as a fireman, but that's just a veil for something, for something else, like mm -hmm. potentially more sinister and dangerous that they should, uh, they should worry about. Well, Puerto Rico has a curious political uh, in-between status between as a uh, unincorporated territory, which also has an enormous military uh, base with top secret operations, which I think is key to the particular, you know, it's, it's kind of the perfect storm for, okay. for rumors. Okay, yeah. a military presence like signals a foreign power and then yeah, the and then it's and, and then, then it's and then it's top a, secret a because story. because the Atlantic yeah. fleet is doing live bombing exercises. Okay, right, right. It's like okay. rumor, rumor mongering, rumor factory. Rumor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great. Oh, but so they get called vampire stories because it involves sucking, sucking. blood. Right. Um, the the but the rumor is that people there are certain people that are out to suck your blood. In various ways, like drain right. drain blood from you. Right, um, particularly firemen and maybe doctors. Firemen and maybe doctors. Um, and there were stories of prostitutes that would, um, for men who went to the prostitutes, they would like be um, brought into a room and they'd sit in a chair, fall into a pit, die, and then they they would be used. Their blood would be right. sucked from at that point. Right. Um, and that um, yeah. So in various ways people are coming for your body or your blood these various like types of people other types of people to be on the lookout for um, and did they have they had different names for it but it, it was um, yeah there are different names I mean she's she's putting under the spot of rubric the, the most the, mm -hmm. the one that's been most worked on is the Mumiami um, and you know there's there's a lot of I mean I think that's that's one where you see there's a there's a huge historiography of kind of like people t debating over how we how we think about this um, but you know, but she's putting it, put, putting all these blood-sucking phenomena together mm -hmm. under one rubric. So I'm curious, what? Because one of the things her she announces at the beginning is that she's not really interested in sort of the veracity of these claims, more about how um, these stories have power. And so I'm curious, how is it that uh, this particular monograph makes an intervention into? Uh, uh, African history, like what is it that we understand better by studying rumor as opposed to what, you know, more traditional ways of going into the archive? I mean, I think there's a way in which she is addressing this book towards both the, you know, the earlier generation of African historians who, without an archive, they didn't have an archive, so they had to go out and interview people, but, you know, hearsay had a, and oral history was suspect in the academy for a long time. Um, so the thrust of early oral history in Africa was really about veracity, and it was about establishing, you know, um, a uh, you know the uh, a knowledge base that that looked verifiable. And and I think she's saying, wait a second, you guys, you're you're you fetishized testimony and you your emphasis on truth. You've gotten you've forgotten about the ways in which rumor and gossip can also get us get the the this this you know, affect, the experience of colonialism, issues around anxieties about, you know, um, changing conceptions of um, certain kinds of nervousness, 
that that uh, that are part of the experience of of the period that you know that 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 um, the I think that first generation of oral historians just didn't feel like they could go there because they were still justifying the use of oral evidence. Um, so they had like a just the facts, ma'am, kind right, of attitude. Exactly, exactly. And they were trying to give a sort of recounting of the fa a record to establish yes. the sort of a historical record of the sort of objectively verifiable right. historical facts about Africa. And, that, and then they thought oral testimony is unreliable and like, look, case in point, look at all these rumors right. <laughs> Which, about, about blood-sucking entities. Right. Um, um, but then one response is, no, well, you are getting a record of the facts if you're reporting on people's interpretation of, of the facts. That's, you know, that's as much a part of the facts, a part of the historical record as anything. So oral, and why, how else are you going to find that in, out unless you just ask people for their, the, what, their sense of things, their interpretation for their stories? And then you document the stories and you have a record of how people thought that's as legitimate a part of the history as anything else. I think she's in a way kind of honoring the African authors of these rumors to say, you know, uh, that these are really, uh, these are conversations where people are trying to, you know, they're in, they're told in the subjunctive and they're, there's a way in which they're, they're um, trying to sort hearsay is about sorting out those contradictions. Um, and, and, you know, we can hear it as an as a indigenous kind of conversation. And, you know, you, you don't have to just focus on the truth. On the one hand, she's saying she wants to be careful about the term because it does cite a particular kind of European folkloric history. But I'm just thinking that it seems to me that the contemporary American analog is something like the zombie. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the rumor—I mean, the rumors of vampires and stories of zombies—I'm going to try and think about what the difference is—seem to be really different because there's a way in which what she seems to be implying, and one of the ways which we might think about the, the specter of the vampire is that the vampire exists in some ways because of the rumor, right? The rumor is the thing that gives the mm -hmm. vampire life. Um, without the rumors, without these stories, without the kind of interesting amalgam of personal. Uh, but not necessarily particular detail to these stories, there would be no vampire, there would be firefighters, there would be anesthesiologists, there would be X, Y, rational, empirical, material thing. That is a different order of truth and reality than the deep, fantastic life now of like the zombie, right? Where in, I think, like the American imagination, the figure of the zombie isn't just one on TV, but uh, the way in which we talk about what happens to people around us, right? Uh, people on their devices become zombies. There's a kind of sense of us as like a, uh, a political body zombified. And so what is, is the vampire a particular, to go back to Aaron's question, cultural, <laughs> historical context there that um, maybe doesn't travel in time and space to America? Is it that um, it's just a matter, is this like a semantic issue? Or is there two different kind of bodies of these weird supernatural figures, potentially? Yeah, philosophers, by the way, love talking about zombies and doing zombie thought experiments, mm -hmm. so-called qualia zombies. Like if you're trying to figure out the nature of consciousness and you imagine zombies have that consciousness but behave like us in all these ways, and. Um, and you can do political philosophy via zombies and all kinds of, mm. um, uh, but anyway, it still totally has this function, like not just pop culture, but like for like serious intellectual, you know, exploration of like deep topics. 
And, and because zombies are brainless? Is that the thing, right? They, that's the or mindless, I guess. Mindless. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But vampires aren't. Vampires are intentional. But I thought there was a really cool, there's a super cool point, which is they have, like zombies for us, we still tell zombie stories all the time, right? And they have the life for us, sort of a fictional, fictional life. Is, it's not just a story someone told, but it, it does this work for us and our thinking about things. But even with their, even with the, the vampires or the stories of bloodsuckers, even when they're asked, or do you really think it's true, right? They wouldn't necessarily defend the stories, the vampire stories, as completely true. They would sort of say, that's not really the point of that it's completely true, right? Um, um, they said, no, look, um, that's just the way we put things because it communicates your point and it helps explain things, or it, was, it had a social function, that sort of discussion. And that way, it's, their vampire stories are not that different from our vampire, from our zombie stories, mm -hmm. right? Because um, we can spend a long time talking about what vampires do or do in the theory of vampires. Oh, is it really true? No, I don't really believe in zombies. Now, maybe if push comes to shove, they might say the same thing, or they say it's half truth, or they're not, they don't think it's that important, but they say, no, I don't believe everything that we're saying about the, the vampires, uh, but, but you're missing the point if you're, you're not getting the point. So it's almost like the zombies, oh, it's almost, sorry, I'm mixing them up. It's almost like the vampire um, stories were just um, like a language or a language game that's not itself truth or false, but just the way of expressing other truths that you don't evaluate sort of in terms of the kinds of truths about firefighters or, you know, or um, drugs or, you know, so like sort of biomedical sort of discourse, you know, like those sorts of facts, you know, aren't the way to get at the, the things they're trying to describe with the vampire discourse. And that way it could be useful to catch on to sort of other sort of things, other, other truths you might think um, that, they, that they can convey to each other for various reasons, sort of like the way that we convey to each other when we, when we talk about uh, um, uh, zombies. Well, she uses the term metaphor um, right. To kind of, and I think in, in a way, some of her, 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 some of these vampiric acts are almost more, you know, I, I almost image them as kind of images of extraction. Um, but she does use the term metaphor. But this ra raises a, um, one, I mean, much as I love Louise White's work, this material, I think, um, it, and this pertains to your point, in a way, she's she doesn't really, and, and she can't maybe from her sources think about the, these rumors as speech acts. And I think there is a way in which, you know, there, there are things that you say in private. I mean, for me, gossip, for example, is something that you're, it, it's very, um, you know, it's very inchoate, uh, but when, a, when, when gossip is shared, it becomes a rumor and it goes public. I think of the, these two, I think the, of these two genres as quite different. Um, and there's a way in which in her archival material and in, you know, when you're collecting the oral testimonies about these vampires, these may be stories that are told in the kitchen, in, you know, the bedroom. They may not be stories that you would tell a British colonial officer. And that is, you know, that, that I, I, I mean, this is a challenge as a historian to kind of contend with this. But I think what you're talking about is, is getting at that, which we have to reconstruct because, you know, like a folklorist, she's taking these materials and she's putting them out there, but some of these things would, would be told in private. Some of them might be, might, you know, um, might, might be told in the public realm, and I think this mm -hmm. gets to where, where you were thinking about, which is the kind of credibility issue. Okay, or yeah. They were seen as having official public credibility, and it was sort of like, in contrast with that, there are ways that people in their private lives or relationships would still think it was their own way of making sense of it against sort of the socially accepted ways of 
So they, they knew that they weren't seen as credible, but they still were asserting the sort of, in a way, yeah, asserting the, the, the legitimacy of their own way of understanding the world, um, where they have suspicion and they're distrustful of the colonial powers. They're distrustful of what's considered publicly acceptable or not. That to them is like, just this imposition, an extractive imposition, you know, um, and they're sort of responding to that. It's sort of an, you might think of it as almost a kind of protest, or at least as a kind of self-assertion, where they're going to sort of have their own reality as against, you know, a force that they feel is alien. So, uh, speaking of that, one of the things that bothered me the most about um, this uh, work, which is, you know, pretty great, uh, was this celebratory tone. Um, of these kind of um, rumors. Um, and, you know, they might be serving a, a criticism of extraction in the context of Africa, but she also brings in the example of the blood libels and very much, you know, connects the two. So, um, you know, the, the image of the Jew as a blood sucking uh, figure is also something that people are come up with to deal with their fears. Um, so, what kind of what distinguishes, let's say, if at all, there's different ways that people work through fears in very different kind of political valences. Um, do we want to distinguish this? Do we not want to distinguish this? And I, I think in this sense, it also relates to the zombie um, issue. Um, I, part of the history of, the, of, of, of how zombies came to be is kind of cloudy. And there are two, if I remember correctly, um, two different assumptions in the scholarship. Um, one of them is that, um, you know, during the transatlantic slave trade, um, basically West African traditions mixed with uh, experiences on the ground in the plantation. And so zombies were stories that slaves were telling themselves to cope with an unbearable situation. Another assumption is that it was actually told by the plantation owners or by workmasters to um, basically uh, stop slaves from killing themselves because if you commit suicide, you'll become a zombie. And what's worse than you know being enslaved for the rest of your life is being enslaved after the rest of your lives, right, for the rest of your death. So in both cases, we have an issue of extraction. But does it matter, you know, who um, tells the rumor, what purpose it serves, um, and yeah, what do, what do we do with this popularist um, tendency of it? And I think it's very much related to today as well. Mm -hmm. This is such an interesting back history to the zombie because my conception of it, I think, has become super contemporary. And Whereas it's like kind of a, like a future dystopic vision, right? right? Mm -hmm. That the zombie apocalypse is on the horizon, and you know there's been really interesting work on this in terms of big capital. But this actually maybe there's a really lovely, and I'm sure people have done the work on the very coherent arc between transatlantic slavery um, and the rise of capitalism. Um, as a kind of right. early origination of the zombie rumor and the zombie apocalypse, that is the grand takeover of humans by zombies as the actual outcome of late capital. Um, but in each of, like, but it seems to me that's a really different time of, even the kind of long history still offers a kind of different time of zombies, and it seems like the time of vampires. Like, the time of vampires, vampires live amongst us, right, in Louise White's telling. They are potentially our neighbors, they are, 
you know, the person you walk down the street with, or the person at the clinic. We don't quite have the kind of contemporary navy to zombies, right? We don't really believe that if there's a zombie sitting next to us because we would know, right? That's, that's okay. the difference, maybe? We would know a zombie would announce themselves by trying to... The moaning. Brains. Yeah. yeah, the moaning, the, <laughs> the decay, whatever... Their arm falls off, yeah. They're, they're not human enough, right? They're, yeah. Whereas the vampire is weirdly human. I mean, it is a human figure that does an unhuman thing. Isn't that, sorry, can I bring in the European version of that right. was, like Transylvania or the, you know, the figure inspired by Vlad, Vlad the Impaler? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, isn't that sort of like a behind the scenes? I mean, the, the vampires are among us. And then you can't differentiate to them, but then you know at night when you're not paying attention, they go through this transformation. That's when they come after and suck your blood. Um, so yeah, that the your that's more the European style, but they have that's that's similar to the African stories of the blood suckers. They're out there interacting with us, and then you never know when you're going to be taken and have your your blood or your fluids or your fat uh, extracted. Well, she makes makes a distinction between the traditional witch, witch idiom, you know, mm -hmm. of women typically women turning into poultry and. Um, and sucking babies, which oh, is wow. a kind of traditional African idiom, and then the the vampire, which is, which is a stranger, and mm -hmm. and and has this kind of um, mysteriousness about it. Oh, I love the witch witch stories, which she discusses. The first time I felt like I ever understood like the the, the idea in talking about witches, um, and wasn't the idea in, in Louise White's telling, um, or at least reporting to other people's work on it. Um, was that there's there's a relationship and then there's sort of a there's a wrong done and maybe there's a power relationship such that there can't be sort of just retribution for the wrong or, or recompense or something like that and so it was a way for the person who's wronged to sort of get justice they would go behind the scenes um, I guess to the witch right who would who would cast the spell and sort of mete out retribution so it was like a it's like a it was almost like you're imagining there's a just penal system in operation right. And then um, the rumors of this, even the rumors of witches, could have a social function, because then if you thought, you know, if you were going to abuse your wife or whatever, you know, with a power relationship, um, if you thought that she might go to a witch, you know, and then have a spell pot on you or whatever, like maybe you wouldn't. You maybe you think twice, because it's it's like the police are coming after, you. like the witch police are eventually going to get you, and so maybe you may not. So it might be that there were power uh, inequalities at the time, and then the witch rumors came up and functioned in a way to sort of balance balance the power relations or at least have people exercise the power relations more respectably or responsibly or, or something like that. Yeah, maybe many people have argued this. Oh, they have argued yeah. that. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so is one of the interventions then for studying these particular kind of tales, uh, rumor is a way of like understanding how something that might be fanciful or non-verifiable uh, actually affects actual human behavior. Like, yes. How, you know, social behavior, et cetera. Absolutely. Um, yeah, because these, um, these, these are rumors which, you know, for a long time were, were not treated in the, in the record because they were seen as so fanciful. But yes, they caused um, rumor panics, um, and they caused, at times they led to violence. Absolutely. But how, how, how about on the vampire stories, what, how should we think about, if those were the downsides, you know, um, but what was like the positive or sort of understandable social function of the stories? Um, or is there a way to sort of characterize those 
um, I mean, there's sort of maybe you could think of them as a way of sharing information across across people who couldn't otherwise communicate or wouldn't otherwise computer, communicate, or are separated by different governments in different countries, different colonial governments. I mean, you could think of it as a way of them sharing information, like there's with the vampire stories about real goings on, you know, real sort of forms of abuse or killing or extractions, right? It's just put in terms of the in terms of the vampires. Um, and even if they're not sort of, don't have a way of being careful to validate what goes on in any particular case, they could keep telling these stories and it was a way of sort of informing your neighbor or your, your and people on the other side of the border or in the nearby areas that this stuff's still going on, it's still a real problem. So it's like news. You might think of it as having a news uh, kind of function, um, this discourse. I mean, in mm -hmm. that way, it's a little bit like, um, it's a little bit like what we think of as conspiracy theory, like connect the dots conspiracy theory. So there's something that doesn't explain, like, you know, why on the moon landing does the flag, you know, st the flag flies out upright, you know, like, um, you know, wouldn't it be draping somehow or just, you know, something like something, something that to the conspiracy that should be explained or, you know, something about JFK's death, right? And so they see these dots that sort of unconnected, right? Um, and then the theory, conspiracy theory gives them a, an explanation that connects the dots. It gives them a way of at least talking about it so they can think about it. But you might think that um, there's a, a re something like that happening. Like there are all these disparate events, these disappearances, these, their killings that there are various times. Um, and uh, instead of just seeing them as all unrelated incidences, you know, the, this, telling them as a story of these sort of blood suckers or fluid suckers as vampire stories kind of unifies them in a way that uh, makes them, sort of gives them explanatory power and, um, um, and maybe cautionary tales too, you know, where not to go. Don't go to those, don't go to certain places because that's where, the, where people get taken or, you know, uh, things like that. I think that's exactly what I mean. She she really um, part of her me methodological insight is to is to focus on these details. Yeah. Is right. don't just you know collect hundreds of stories. The pattern you know is maybe in the in the in a kind of in in these details that people see as significant. Mm -hmm. These kind of little um, elements. Uh, I think that's exactly what she's saying, and it does bridge to conspiracy thinking as well. Right, right. It's kind of like these details might enable you to connect the dots between these phenomena which yeah. others otherwise don't, don't seem connected. And it's like they, they can say the stories can be wrong in any given, any particular case. It doesn't have to be truthful about the particular case, but the truth in it is the, the coherence and it's the patterns that are getting picked out right. that these people otherwise wouldn't have a way of, of even thinking about or talking about, let alone like avoiding, you know. So it's a way of giving them like control over or react a way of reacting to in a coordinated way to like really like genuinely awful you know terrible events um, so and that's that's the truth in it in some sense can we talk about what rumor is general generally and what gossip is generally and how, what's the diff what is rumor what is gossip and what's the difference between the two and what are their what do they do for people what do they do for us what do you think? Well, Louise White says that gossip reveals contradiction, okay. and rumor contains contradiction. Wow. So, I guess in a way, gossip then is a kind of truth telling. Okay. To bridge to. I'm just curious. What do you think about that hmm. bifurcation? Well, I th I don't know. It doesn't really work for me. Um, I'm not yeah. sure. You know, I I think of gossip as more private and rumor as more public. So once you know, gossip might be something that happens in a private context between a couple people, but once it 
once the um, this becomes once it hits the street, and it becomes shared, then it to me it's a rumor. I, that's how more I think about it. It's almost like the opposite of what you say. As far as in the sense of rumor containing would be a thing that sort of yeah, you know, it seems to be the opposite of what you're saying in the sense that like when rumor is a thing that has become a public thing, it's you know it's the opposite of containment. Well. Let's concretize this. Imagine, yeah. you know, if you're gossiping about someone's, um, you know, the sister-in-law's immoral behavior, and then um, that that might be kind of something, you know, which is a revealing contradictions. Like she says she's sincere, but, but you know what's really going on. Yeah. I mean, that's perfect gossip. But then rumor, you know, um, once like the pizza gate, that is a rumor. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? Yeah. Isn't I mean I feel like there's a, a, a question of verifiability. Okay. Like gossip is to me the exchange of somewhere verifiable information that is maybe not public. Whereas rumor okay. I associate it with a thing that does not have to be as verifiable. Maybe this yeah. is a but I'm just thinking about the ways in which gossip um, again, maybe it's the personal elements of gossip, right? Where gossip is um, transitive. I know a person who X, mm. Y. Whereas rumor, by being more far flung, potentially from you, I heard a story about a person who, right, um, allows for more um, storytelling, hearsay, mm -hmm. uh, production of detail that may not actually uh, exist. And they seem to me different in their intimacies and then also maybe in their narrative effects. Is it not gossip then if you're talking about the Kardashians, if you're not if you're not close to them? If you're like water cooler cock or about them and the latest thing, that's not gossip because you're, there's no close connect, intimate personal so, connection? It would be like, there's a rumor that Kanye West is in fact a vampire. Okay, right? yeah. Versus, seems to me, um, Oh my God! I saw Kanye West. I, a friend of mine saw Kanye West at a bar, and he was drinking some viscousy red fluid. Mm. <laughs> I, was, I was at a party once, and I saw this mm. thing. You know, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I'm not sure that that's the best form, but there is something about it. Doesn't matter whether or not you know Kanye, but one, how believable the statement is, and how close to you as a speaking subject that statement is. Mm. Right. It seems to me gossip is more intimate yeah. than rumor. But it doesn't have to be first-hand information. No, I think often gossip isn't first-hand, right? Mm -hmm. Aren't we almost always gossiping about something that is not us? One way we think about gossip is like if someone would be like, okay, you just told me this tasty tidbit, how do you know? Right? We almost always, I feel like, call each other out, like, give me your source. And in gossip, it might not be like what we think of as the most verifiable source, but it will be, my uncle told me. It, the story some, begins there. Right, there Sorry. is like, you can like cite an origin of some yeah. kind. Whereas rumor, it's in the world, right? Sometimes it's close to you, but it doesn't have to be in order for it to be a thing that you can say. So there's a way in which the kind of mixing of genres and the breakdown is like, if you feel not just disenfranchised, but like you're living in utterly separate worlds mm -hmm. than elected officials, one thing to do is not just decimate their world, right? Because you do feel disempowered, right? Mm -hmm. 
but it is to bring their world somehow close, right? To make it not the realm of rumor, but the realm of gossip, such that you can be like, well, my uncle was in that pizza shop and heard the cries of small children. You know what I mean? It's like whatever that takes to make what is distant somehow close, then it's less terrifying. So explaining that and then there's an intimacy in sort of in a community among people of coming up with like a shared story that explains a discrepancy, something that's otherwise hard to explain. But I, but I think your point is an important one, which is that sharing this, uh, these, you know, uh, sharing hearsay also creates an intimacy. It forges a certain kind of insiderness, right, sense right. of belong of, of, it forges a relationship. Yeah. Right, right. That's one of the interesting things about all of these online communities that explicitly peddle in conspiracy theories, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That somewhere the problem we're having in describing the difference between gossip and rumor is that there is a breakdown happening virtually mm -hmm. all the time and it's proliferating all over our lives, right? So that what we used to think of as either idle or intimate is now taking up what used to be the realm of rumor, right? The kind of global, that there can be a rumor of a vast government conspiracy. We don't really think like a gossip of mm -hmm. a vast government conspiracy, mm -hmm. except that now, this is one of the things that in a lot of people are saying, they're talking about, right? The ways in which um, there's kind of this piling on of detail mm -hmm. um, that's unverifiable, which, mm -hmm seems to bring what is far away really close, mm -hmm. right? So that like, what should be rumor, what should be conspiracy becomes local on the level of gossip. And it doesn't matter that you're communicating with people far away. You never see these people, you don't know their names necessarily. There is a kind of communitarian effect. You're still signaling, being, signaling part of a movement, signaling to others that you're part of a movement and feeling like yourself like you're part of it. Like, sort of, it's like creating community via being willing to share these stories. Even if people don't think that they're true necessarily, like Pizzagate, like that all these politicians, especially Hillary Clinton, are somehow running a child like sex trafficking ring through mm -hmm. a DC pizza thing. Like maybe they, 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 maybe they spread the rumor or they announce it as, yeah, as a way of singly, signaling belonging and feeling like they belong with a large-scale community, like online or whatever, right, or in, uh, it, it's sort of to feel part of a resistance movement of a sort. Um, or that's, and if you, even if you ask them, well, is it really true, do you, and do you feel like you really have evidence? They might correctly say, no, I don't really know, you know, but, you know, it's truth, true enough, or something like that. And, what, and by that they mean, like, you know, it's been said enough, there's enough credibility that um, it, it works for purposes of us, you know, for, belonging and it, it brings us together you know it fuels the fuels the movement so it has they might even themselves focus explain the social function as opposed to and back away from the idea that it's true or completely true or yeah. true enough isn't just about signaling membership though right like they also say in the book true enough is about kind of hinting at an underlying more fundamental truth right so the the Pizzagate story might be Hillary Clinton is running a child molestation ring in a pizza parlor but the kind of fundamental truth is people like me don't trust people like her right and that and that they would stand by you right, know and right. so then the question becomes 
if she's untrustworthy, if people in DC generally are untrustworthy, then what, how far would they go, right? And what kind of illustrative example can we come up with, whether it's materially factual or not, to make the point of how far these people would be willing to go? It's a way of saying you can't trust them to not go that far, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, and we don't know who they really are, and we don't know what they really do, and they could be doing this, right? And I think um, that comes from a, like, actually kind of, you know, uh, verifiable distance between the average, you know, citizen and their political leaders, right? Yeah. There is a disconnect between what the lives that these people are living and the lives of someone who, like, is a senator or whatever mm. in, in Congress or something. I think it's like a, that's actually, that is, that distance is actually correct, but the claims that come from that distance are, you know, shall we say, uh, not correct. Questionable, yeah. Well, you know, Lucy White says this in her book, that the vampire claims reveal a world of vulnerability and unreasonable relationships, and mm-hmm. it's, it's exactly the same, I think. If you are, you know, if you're a Trump supporter and you feel very concerned about what's happening in Washington, but also very confused and like it doesn't have anything to do with your life, you're living probably a vulnerable, at least a financially precarious, vulnerable existence, surrounded by unreasonable relationships to people like your senator, right, who have no connection to your life, and the, the, you know the content of the Pizzagate narrative is also quite similar to a traditional African witchcraft tale because mm. it's about it's about a woman mm. involved in not caring and nurturing but rather uh, mm. death mm. and yeah. of children yeah children exactly yeah. Yeah. it's kind of an inversion yeah. of, of fertility wow. in, in that way I w- I was kind of struck by that Jeez, mm. my eyes are open <laughs> wow. that's amazing. Mm. You know, another thing I was thinking about in um, uh, in regards to the Pizzagate story and is and and these discussions in in general is they don't really focus on the technology, but I think the I think the um, new media, you know, Twitter and Facebook. I mean, part of the you're you're belonging by sharing, and it's not so much that you would you know again, it's not so much that you believe these stories, but somehow you're a part of the club by virtue of the fact that you're sharing it, and it made me think about. You know, in in you know the traditional, you know, um, political science literature on populism would, would talk about participatory rituals or participatory activities or mobilizational regimes, as in fascism. And in a way, it's these new media outlets that are enabling a kind of participatory per, um, work that I think is in the end mobilizational. I mean, it you know, or it creates a faux mobilization maybe, but. But it's creating the illusion that they're somehow part of this. So I think that helps us. Nobody is talking about the the, the role of the of practice or you know the activity that these new media um, enable. But I think that that it helps us understand why belief is not as important as just being part of the chain. For installments from the Truth RRG, or for other UCHRI podcasts, visit us at iTunes, SoundCloud, or at our online platform, uchri.org/foundry. <laughs>